to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma, police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Calling us from Atlantic City, New Jersey area, Jim Plosis on the phone. Jim, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Very much appreciated. It's my honor. Thanks for having me. Man, you said honor? What are you talking to me? You make me feel kind of <laughs> elevated, my friend uh, and brother. First of all, we were going to talk. You got a book coming out. We were going to talk about a lot of great things. Uh, before we talk about the book, You've got quite the storied experience in law enforcement, a brief bird's eye view of your law enforcement career from start to finish. Well, I, um, I, ironically, I started as a seasonal policeman in Ocean City, New Jersey. I was going to college at the time, and I graduated college. I got the bug. They, Ocean City wasn't hiring at the time, so I got hired by a small department, Woodbine Police Department, a four-man department. So I started there back in 1977. And then um, I had the opportunity to transfer back to Ocean City Police. I transferred back to the Ocean City Police Department where I was in patrol, and then I I ended up in the traffic unit there. And then I had the opportunity to run for sheriff. So I was elected sheriff in 1984. At the time, I was the youngest sheriff in the country for Cape May County, and um, that was a great great opportunity for me. You know, we, we ran a 250-bed jail. You know, we had patrol functions, some specialized units. I was able to start a canine unit there and a mounted unit. So um, it, was a, it was a great opportunity. I ran five times for re-election. I was lucky enough to be unopposed each time. And then um, when President Bush was elected president, the transition team had called me about being the um, U.S. Marshal for the District in New Jersey. At first, I turned it down, and then they called me back a few weeks later saying, you know, have you thought about this? This is the last time we're asking. And I, I said, oh, you know, I, I did take it. You know, um, I thought it'd be a new opportunity for me. So I served as U.S. Marshal during both President Bush's term, and I, I served one year in the next term as well. And it, when I was the U.S. Marshal, um, our U.S. Attorney, we worked closely together, and that was Chris Christie. And when he became governor, he had asked me to come over and take over the um, chairman of the parole board. There were some issues there that he wanted addressed. So I went with Governor Christie, and I served as his chairman of the parole board for his two terms as governor. And in New Jersey, the parole board is the second largest state law enforcement agency. I had over 450 officers there. We supervised almost 19,000 parolees. So I had a, and we were the first paroling authority in the country that got accredited, law enforcement accreditation. So I was proud of that. So I've been at every level of law enforcement, you know, from local to county, the federal to the state. So I, I've had a great opportunity in all those places. And you've done it from patrolmen all the way up to administrators. It's, uh, what a career. Yeah, I've been blessed. And, you know, it was a team effort, you know. Jay, being in law enforcement, it's a family event. My wife was very supportive in, in all my career moves, and it, and it's and my children as well. It's hard on them. You know that, yeah. being a, an old law enforcement guy. But as I say, I've been blessed all the way around. Well, thank you for your service. I always forget to say that. I'm trying to get much better at saying that. And the funny thing is, Jim, when people say to me, 
uh, which by the way, they say far more often now that I'm retired than everything on the job. I never know quite how to respond to that. So I'm getting better at saying thank you for your service and replying with a you're welcome. Yes, yes. I, I agree with you there, but I, I I think we're both cut from the same cloth. You know, I enjoyed every day I was on the street. You know, we could, you know, I, I believe we made a difference, both of us, when we were out there. Absolutely. And, you know, I tried um, really hard. I, I have Sometimes. no regrets. I have no regrets. We both started when there was, you know, the economics, you know, there was no money in being a policeman. It was just really the, the ability to help people and the challenge. Absolutely. And things have changed. But before we get further into this conversation, and I know. We're going to be talking about things like terrorism. We're going to talk about law enforcement, martial service, a lot of other things. You've got a book out that you either co-authored or had someone write along with you. Tell us the name of the book. The book's called Jersey Lawman. I've been involved with the United States Martial Survivor Fund since it started back in 2013. And the Survivor Fund pays for the funeral and college of officers and special deputies killed in the line of duty. Now, in 2019, we didn't have to do any payouts, but in 2018, we paid for three funerals of officers, either deputy U.S. marshals or special deputy U.S. marshals, you know, from local police departments or county sheriff's offices. So I have a neighbor who wrote some other books. He was a um, George Ingram. He was a vice president at Temple University very smart guy, and he approached me a number of years back saying, oh, I'd like to write a book about you. And I said, George, um, I'll let you do that, but all the money to go to charity. So 100% of the proceeds of this book goes to the United States Marshall Survivor Fund. The book's called so, Jersey Law, man. Where can people get it and get more information? You can get it. You can go on any of the book sites, Amazon, BAM, Barnes & Noble. It's, it's on all the... Um, all the book sites, you know, eBay, you can get it anywhere online. And, you know, some local bookstores have it as well. Um, and as I say, it covers the 40 years of law enforcement. You know, it, it, the, the good, the bad, the ugly. You know, I know you have a lot of experience as well. There's some funny stuff in there. There's some real sad stuff in there as well. And, um, I again, I was fortunate. You know, there's some cases from all over the world in there that I was involved in. There, you know, I was involved with the Bernie Madoff case. Up here in New York and New Jersey, some things on him. Um, the 24 carat killer. I don't know if you, that, you remember that case. He was a man who killed a number of jewelers on Long Island in Connecticut. Ironically, we apprehended him in Atlantic City. There's a chapter on him. And as I say, there's some human interest stories. I've been involved with helping Haiti. I've been to Haiti a number of times, um, delivering soccer balls. Um, so there's a chapter on Haiti in there as well. I was honored to be, you know, I was one of the lead marshals down at Katrina, or in New Orleans after Katrina. Um, so there's some stories about, you know, what the marshal service did in the aftermath of Katrina and how we work with the local sheriffs to help them out and get them back on their feet. I'm sure when you were a, a seasonal or temporary police in Ocean City, New Jersey, by the way, a lot of guys I worked with, when I say guys, I mean men and women, started as seasonal officers in Ocean City, Maryland. And, you know, they work the summertime and then go back to whatever they're doing. I'm sure when you were the Ocean City, New Jersey seasonal officer, you never imagined your career would span as long as it did and all the different branches of state, county, and federal. We're talking with Jim Plosis. Jim is a lawman extraordinaire. Uh, I, I mean that 
in all sincerity. We're going to talk about his book, his law enforcement experience. We're going to talk about terrorism and a bunch of other things. We're going to take a short break. Whatever you do, don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you want to be a guest on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, simply contact us. It couldn't be easier. You can send us a message on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show page or email j at letradio.com. That's jay at letradio.com. Return conversation with Jim Plosis. Jim, are you retired now, Jim? No, I'm not. I, um, ironically, I'm chairman of the New Jersey Casino Control Commission. <laughs> just can't. I was just talking with a coworker, by the way, at the radio station. His brother is a brand new Delray Beach, Florida police officer. And I said, I'll probably work until about 10 minutes before I die. Uh, I, I can't see me giving it up because, quite honestly, I don't know what I'd do with myself. Yeah, I agree with that. I, you know, I believe in working. I, you know, I love to work and, um, you know, I, I'm still involved with, you know, law enforcement to some degree. So I, you know, I really enjoy that. And I know you, you feel the same way. You, you know, you, you have the luxury of being on the, the radio talking about law enforcement issues every, you know. Every well, I think week. there's a lot of misunderstanding out there. And, and quite honestly, I tell people this all the time that. In law enforcement, we're not allowed really to talk to the media. Uh, you have public information officers, all that stuff, and not that there's animosity, although there is, but we've relied as individual law enforcement officers and their family members for too long on the news media and Hollywood to tell our stories, and they've done a brutal, horrible job, and now it's so biased that uh, you can't get honest perspective of what law enforcement officers have been through without doing a show like this. That's a great. That's a great point. I agree a hundred percent. It's a tough job, you know. Um, I know you know you were on the streets of Baltimore. You know firsthand. I know firsthand, and um, you know everybody wants a Monday morning quarterback us, and it, it, it's truly a challenge to get our side of the story out. It is, yeah. And I never really minded the money Monday morning quarterbacking, except when it was always negative, and it was always seem to be superseded by political motives. That was the thing, and I hate it. To this day, I hate being a political pawn. That's one of the reasons why we don't do partisan political conversation here. Yeah, it's a challenge. You're right. I feel sorry for law enforcement today at every level. I mean, they are really taking it on the chin. No matter what happens, you know, no matter what, you're not doing it right. Well, let's talk about a couple stories from your career that are featured in your book, Jersey Lawman. Two that you mentioned that I love to talk about. One would be the twenty-four carat killer. Let's talk about that one from from your memory in the book. Tell us about that story and the case. Well, the, the case originated out of um, Long Island. Um, there was a, a jewelry robbery where the man went in and he killed the husband and wife. They've been in the jewelry um, business for over forty years in a pretty safe area of, of Long Island. From there, a few days later, he went over to Connecticut killed another jeweler there. So we knew that he was bouncing around state to state. And that's one advantage of having the marshal service help you track down fugitives. You know, we have nationwide jurisdiction and even in some cases, international jurisdiction. So I know, and you know, as the local policeman, you're restricted. You can't go state to state. So we were brought into the case initially by Long Long Island police and then the Connecticut police as well. So we worked on the case and, um, we can do a lot of things with phone, tracking phones. Um, we were able to piece together. We, 
We got his phone number, and we were tracking him, bouncing around New England area. And then finally, he was smart enough. He, he was turning off the phone, and it, when you turn off the phone, it's tougher to track. You know, you can't track it. We finally ended up, he was heading to, we heard he was heading to Atlantic City, so we, we sent a lot of resources down to Atlantic City. And Atlantic City, back in 207, on average, 35 million people a year come here of the gamble or for entertainment. There's 136 pawn shops in Atlantic City, so it would be a good place to try to pawn jewelry as well as get lost in the crowd. So we ultimately had his phone back in action, and it was pinging. Um, so we were searching the city. We were able to narrow it down. He was in the motel. Of course, we went in clandestinely to talk to the um, front front desk clerk, and he ID'd him. And he, he also said he was with a young lady, and they were in a motel room um, in the motel there. And, and this is the a dangerous guy. Exactly, exactly. He's already killed three people that we and, know and of at creates, the time. For people who don't realize, when you're talking about a hotel and you've got uh, an innocent guest with the, the suspect, and you're talking about a killer, a robber killer, it presents a unique set of circumstances where you've really got to try to manage the apprehension in a way that there's the least amount of potential for violence because innocence, correct? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, we started, you know, setting up a perimeter, of course, and then trying to, you know, anybody, we weren't letting people go back. There were doors, a balcony on the motel, which we could see, that we could see some activity with the curtains and all. Of course, you know, I'm condensing this story to some degree because of time. So we get a perimeter set up, and um, we call, of course, we have the local police department involved, the Atlantic City Police Department, and we need a bullhorn. So um, they get a bullhorn, and um, they have a negotiator there. So I said, so, you know, tell them we got them surrounded, the marshal service here, the local police, we want them to surrender. So if the officers who's doing the negotiation, I, I give them all the overview. So, well, of course, we want to, we, we got to be careful. We don't want to be in a line of fire if we start shooting. Right. So, um, we're on the side of the building, and as the officer goes around, he trips on the curb, he drops the bullhorn, the bullhorn breaks, right? So now that doesn't They've work. So now we've got to find another Jim, bullhorn. Right? Jim, yeah. I know you can appreciate this, um, <laughs> you know, but this is Murphy's Law. Bad things exactly. will happen, right? So we're called back to the PD. They don't have a, an extra bullhorn there. So the state police are there helping us. State police says we have a tactical vehicle that we can get down here, and that has a bullhorn in it. I said, well, you got to get him down here as soon as possible. we got to, you know, get this guy captured. So, make a long story short, they come in with a half-track with a PA system, and we use the PA system, and we start telling the guy, you got to surrender, you're surrounded, there's no hope of getting out. Thankfully, he surrendered, and the um, his girlfriend surrendered as well. So we were able to get him, and they were both, you know, he was convicted of the homicide. Uh, and he's convicted, was it three homicides? Yes, three. Yeah, he got life in prison there. And here's the thing that television, they would have you believe that it would be impossible for any law enforcement people to apprehend someone like that without a lot of gunfire. And that we just shoot people indiscriminately. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, but thank the Lord he surrendered and um, without incident and, you know, he was convicted and, you know, hopefully those families got some solace on knowing that justice was served. And he's doing time now? Yes, yes, he's in custody in New York. Well, great job on that one. What's funny about this, and I couldn't help but laugh, is there's an old saying, I think it was Mike Tyson said, everybody has a fight plan 
until they get punched in the mouth. When we have these apprehension scenarios, they're all plotted out. We, we get together. We have pre-staging. We do this, do that. And then as simple as someone tripping on a curb and breaking a bullhorn changes the entire scenario. All the planning goes out the window, and it's, believe it or not, a lot of it is improvised. Exactly, exactly. And uh, you guys did an outstanding job. We are talking with Jim Plosis. Jim has been in almost every aspect of law enforcement you can imagine, from seasonal police officer to sheriff to uh, U.S. Marshal for parts of New Jersey to head of parole board. We're going to talk about him, his book, and his experiences. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. There's only one official Facebook page for the show. Do a search on Facebook for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and be sure to click like. Back to our conversation with Jim Plosis. Jim, he is the subject of a book called Jersey Lawman. You can get it online. Do a search at Amazon and there's places for Jersey Lawman, as in New Jersey. And uh, the proceeds from the book go to benefit, what is it, Jim? The United States Marshall Survivor Fund. Which, by the way, a great effort, great job. And one of the things that you brought up about this is that it also helps with special deputy U.S. Marshals, which, by the way, I was when I was detailed at DEA in Baltimore. So I was traveling Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, doing enforcement stuff, and eventually Miami, Florida. And uh, that's a breath of reassurance for, for guys and gals like me that are doing what they do. Exactly. And, and just real quick there, Jay, um, you know, if you're assigned to the FBI or to the DEA or the Marshal Service Task Force, you're all deputized by the, the Marshal Service. They're yeah. the ones who give you that deputation. And as I said, we if any of those guys or yourself or any of those guys who would, God forbid, get killed in the line of duty, we, we would pay for their funeral and also help with education benefits for the children. And thank you for doing that. A really quick funny story when i was detailed the dea and had that marshal status was sent to miami to find a source for a cocaine distribution organization in baltimore and we landed on the plane we got to miami got our rental car all that stuff and then uh contact dea they're like "Uh, here's a map and here's a radio you're on your own and (laughs) that was me and another city (laughs) cop were like we didn't even know where we are uh so uh but but you got through it you got through it that went to the territory that's what we're talking about improvising when you're talking about apprehending the 24-karat killer. Another case you mentioned in your book, I think there'll be of a lot of uh, significance and, and people be very curious about, is the Fort Dix 6. I vaguely remember that. Give us a refresher on that one. Yeah. Jay, that was a, um, at the time, it was one of the biggest um, terrorist cases that came up in, New, in in the country when this occurred, where six young men were training to attack the Fort Dix military installation there in the middle of New Jersey. How the case evolved was that they were going up into the Poconos and they were doing military training up there on how to attack Fort Dix or a military installation. They were practicing heavy weapons up there and some tactics up there. And they were filming what they were doing up in Goulstown in the Poconos. And they had it on a tape, and they wanted to put it on a um, disc so they could continue training but seeing what they were doing right and what they were doing wrong. So they took it to a circuit city in Mount Laurel, 
and they wanted it put from a tape onto a disc at that time. Ironically, most of the time that's done electronically, but the machine was acting up, so the, the store clerk said, well, you got to come back, the machine's acting up, you'll have it the, the next day. So that evening when he was looking at the tape, when it was being transferred, he saw some disturbing images of a lot of gunfire, a lot of automatic weapon fire, and so he, he watched some of it, and he didn't like what he saw, and then he ended up calling the local police department. And then the local police department came, got a copy of the, the, the disc, notified the Joint Terrorism Task Force. As you know, after 9-11, all terrorism matters were turned over to the FBI for investigation. And as you know, most everywhere in the country has a Joint Terrorism Task Force of state, local, as well as FBI and other federal partners that handle the terrorism cases. So the local police immediately brought in the um, Joint Terrorism Task Force. The FBI, of course, took over the case and started from there. Fifteen months later, they arrested him after they were trying to buy some automatic weapons and after they were taking pictures and had maps of Fort Dix to attack Fort Dix. Um, and this was discovered of the, because of a, a piece of equipment that was down at Circuit City. Exactly, exactly. And good. This, this, is, you know, this is great where you had a store clerk see something and said something that he didn't think was appropriate, how the local police jumped in, immediately called the FBI in and the Joint Terrorism Task Force. It was a great collaboration between everybody. It was really a, a textbook case of how it should have happened. And prior to 9-11, that was so easy for these situations for someone to drop the ball and say, yeah, we'll get to it. Exactly, exactly. Because they know, didn't have the cooperation, the interagency cooperation that we do nowadays. And I've actually heard reports of some of that starting to come back up, but you had agencies next door to each other that didn't talk to each other. So this is a great job by everybody involved. Exactly. Well, it, and everybody was involved in this. And as I say, you know, it was a 15-month investigation. Ultimately, they arrested him when they, you know, these guys were getting a little too close to being able to get the, the firepower they wanted. And as I say, the one was a delivery man um, for a pizzeria. So he knew how to get on the Fort Dix. He knew the, the layout of the land and or the, the, the uh, military base. So they ultimately were, you know, arrested. It was a, a joint operation again by local law enforcement, the FBI, and the state police. They went to trial. Five of them got life in prison. One, two of them are, are in Florence. The other ones are in Terre Haute. And then one, one of the lesser players only got five years um, for the, uh, you know, for his involvement in the case. Great job um, done a, by all. Was this established to be? And people love to make a big deal out of this. Coming from a law enforcement background, I don't. Domestic and or foreign terrorism related, which one was it? Well, they, they you know, they were from, three of them from Albania, one from Jordan, and one from Turkey. Um, and they came over here at young ages, but they were radicalized on the internet by Zucali. You know, we had, during the trial, we had days and days of tapes that they would watch on Zucali doing, you know, the beheadings back in the day there. So um, they were they were indoctrinated by watching you know you know the propaganda on the internet. People don't realize. You know, I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia. Big naval installations. There a lot of military. The vast majority of men and women that are on base that are military men and women are not armed. You have a police department on the base. You have like the MPs or shore patrol, whatever it might be. 
but they're, it's not a huge number. So if these guys had gotten their weapons and gotten on base, there could have been massive amounts of bloodshed. Exactly, exactly. Um, and ironically, you know, during the, the trial, we found out they went down, looked at Dover Air Force Base. They thought that was too hard to get onto. They looked at the Cape May Training Center for the Coast Guard, and then they decided on Fort Dix. And Fort Dix is a very large base with a lot of entrances and all. And then, as I said, the one man delivered pizzas there, uh, you know, in prior years, so he knew the layout of the base. But again, you're right. On the military installations, very few people are armed. One of the things I hear people quite often say is, oh, he's a pizza delivery guy. Obviously, he's insane. You can't take this threat seriously. What's your response to that? I think we've all seen people that you think are insane, but they ended up, they can do a lot of damage, you know, and, you know, we all know mental health is a real problem in this country. So if you see somebody needs help, you you know, you got to try to get them help or refer them to somebody. Absolutely. And I always say this, it doesn't matter whether the person is mentally ill that commits a violent crime or is in complete control of his or her senses, the damage and injuries done to the people that are victims are no different. And they suffer with those for oftentimes the rest of their lives. Some are killed and their families suffer with it for the rest of their lives. So it doesn't really matter whether it's mentally ill or not, or pizza delivery guy or not. The threat is very real. We're taking a short break. We'll be right back. Discover the exciting world of podcasts at hefepods.com. From captivating stories to life advice and much more. There's a podcast for every interest and passion. Be entertained by your favorite radio personalities in both English and Spanish. Don't waste any more time. Find a great English or Spanish language podcast to follow and discover a world of possibilities in your own language. Find the best podcasts at chefepods.com. I want to tell you about a product, actually a line of products, that have changed my life dramatically health products. I know many of you like me are skeptical about claims made for these nutritional supplements. However, these Juice Plus products have made a world of difference for me. The simplest, cheapest, least expensive product they have as a result of taking it, a chewable berry flavored product. I've had full night's sleep every night and zero leg cramps. I know doesn't seem like a lot, but getting good night's sleep and having a stable mood helps me quite a bit. You can get more details about Juice Plus products at letpops.com. That's letpops.com. And for those of you looking for a great business opportunity, check out letpops.com. This is Law Enforcement Show. I'm John J. Wiley, joined by Jim Plosis. Jim is a Jersey lawman. I love that name, by the way. That's the name of the book, Jersey Lawman. A lot of people don't realize I was born in New Jersey. I was born in Passaic, spent a couple months in Rutherford, and then uh, the Navy took my father and family all over the world. So I'm a Navy brat and raised everywhere else. I have a deep fondness for New Jersey, and there's many different parts of that state. People always think of, and I'm guilty of this, they think of Northern Jersey as what the whole state is like. And South Jersey's not like that. And for goodness sakes, the western part of New Jersey, the Delaware Gap, is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen in my life. You're absolutely right, Jay. I mean, I'm from Cape May County, the most southern part of the county or the state. 
We have beautiful beaches. Um, we have 31 miles of beaches in Cape May County. We have over 18,000 campgrounds. I mean, it's a beautiful area, and um, you're right. People don't realize how nice New Jersey is. When you talk to people and they find out you're from New Jersey, or you talk about the book, and the name of the book is Jersey Law, man. By the way, do a search on Amazon or Google. Find out how you can buy it. Do you ever get comparisons of, oh, yeah, I know what New Jersey is like because I watch The Sopranos. Yeah, I do hear that. I do hear that. And that really, as you know, that's way up in North Jersey and, um, you know, right near New York City. And, you know, South Jersey is distinctly different than that. So, um, is there a little bit of love-hate between the state in, the, in South Jersey compared to North Jersey? Do they say, oh, that's a different part of the country? It really is. It truly is. I mean, um, you know, it, 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 it's, we're rural down here. We have farms. You know, um, we, we, there's a rodeo in Salem County, the oldest rodeo east of the Mississippi. So, you know, we're a rural area compared to North Jersey. And also, I, and I'm not very familiar with your neck of the woods. I do have relatives in the Toms River area. I spend a little bit of time visiting there. But that's also, in many ways, a suburb of Philadelphia, isn't it? Yeah, we we do. In the summertime, a lot of people come down to to Ocean City or Wildwood or Cape May. They're all in Cape May County and, um, you know, vacation or spend a couple of months down here in the summertime. So we do get a lot of Philadelphia people coming down this area. And we had some incidents in your neck of the woods uh, involving Philly mobsters. And I think it was Nikki Scarfo and some other yes, people yes, like that. Yes. Ironically, um, when I was sure I had a contract with the Marshal Service to hold federal prisoners, so when Nikki Scarfo got arrested, I held him twice. Um, ironically, there's chapters in the book about Nikki Scarfo and and Chicken Man Testa and um, Phil Leonetti. I, I had a lot of the mobsters over the years housed in the Cape May County Jail. I'm feeling like we're flashing back to watching episodes of um, mobsters with these guys. And if my memory is correct, didn't Nikki and a couple of his cohorts from uh, South Philly execute a guy in a, a beach house not far from the Atlantic City area? They did, and, um, you know, that, that is true. As you know, they were involved with a number of um, violent crimes there in the region, and, um, you know, Tested was known for, you know, beating people with golf clubs. So, um, you know, they were, they, were, they were tough characters. And yet, when we watch television, quite often these people are somewhat glorified by Hollywood. And in the same movies, they'll portray the local law people as being idiots and stupid and and or corrupt. And that's been the furthest thing from the truth that, that I've ever experienced. Exactly. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more there, Jay. Um, you know, TV does have a habit of portraying us as, um, as dummies, but ultimately, they, you know, Scarfo, Leonetti, and Fest are all in jail. Yeah. Who won that one? Yeah, exactly. It may exactly. have taken a while. And I quite honestly don't understand America's fascination with organized crime. I can understand from one point of view about, hey, the poor, getting some money. I, I get that. I, I get it. But what is often lost in the conversation in the, in the media portrayals is the amount of violence that these groups inflict on people. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I, I think the good news is that I think that trend is changing. I think people see them more as a, you know, organized crime is more into, involved with the drug activity and, um, you know, other activity that that's unsavory. And I think it's turned off some people. Thank heaven. Flashback to the early part of the conversation. What do you see happening terrorism wise? I know that's always something we need to be aware of. 
Well, I, you know, as you said earlier, I think the good, for good, the good news for the American public out there is that, you know, we're working better together than ever before. The Joint Terrorism Task Forces have broke down that, those silos of different jurisdictions and that we're all meeting together, so we're getting that information. But I think the key is citizen involvement. Just like the Fort Dick Six, that case literally was broken by a, a studious guy you know watching the video and calling the local police that's the key if you see something you got to report it or say something so i think that's the good news but we real the due diligence we have to keep it up i mean it's not going away in our lifetime so we just have to re, you know be vigilant out there and by the way and this is my own personal observation this, this whole see something say something i was taught this early on as a young policeman and it was taught to me in particular for women who were victims of sexual assault. If you want to use the term God, you want to use nature, whatever it might be. If your God-given or nature-given instincts tell you something is wrong, it makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, don't ignore those. Do something. For example, realtors, that's big in the news, showing homes. If a guy is making you very, very uneasy, get out. You can always apologize if you're wrong, but get out. Follow, trust exactly. those instincts. Exactly. And, and don't get caught up in the whole foreign versus domestic or anything else or what someone looks like or what nationality or what religion they are. We have too much of that going on. If someone, regardless of their religion, their background, their ethnicity, if they are a violent threat towards people, they need to be dealt with appropriately by the appropriate authorities. No, you're, you couldn't, you, you, you summarized it very well. You know, if, if something doesn't look right and you got a funny feeling, don't do it. I, I agree 100%. And I think that would solve a lot of problems out there and protect a lot of people. One of the things my, my wife will tell you this is uh, if she gets on an elevator and there's a guy in the elevator and she goes, something's not right with this guy, she gets right off. She's like, I'm not closing the door. He could be like, what's her problem all day long? but she's not getting on the elevator with them. Before we leave, we're quickly running out of time. The name of your book is Jersey Lawman. Where can people get more information? Where can they buy the book? Um, Jay, you can get the book on any of the websites, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, or eBay. And again, all the proceeds go to the United States Marshall Survivor Fund. You know, we got some good um, reviews on the book. Brian Dennehy, I think a lot of people might remember him from the Rambo movie. He did a nice... Um, blurb for the book. He's read the book saying that, you know, he played law enforcement at every level. And if you really want to see how it's done, read this book. Um, John Walsh from America's Most Wanted also did a testimonial for us on the book. So I'm happy, you know, that we have support out there from, from well-known people that have read the book and have enjoyed it. So, you know, again, it's for a worthy cause. And um, if people want to know about law enforcement at every level, you know, it, it touches on everything. And by the way, the proceeds benefit the, what's the name of the charity again? The United States Marshall Survivor Fund. And what does that do? That pays for funerals of, of deputy U.S. Marshals or special deputy U.S. Marshals, state and local, that are killed in the line of duty. In 2018, we paid for three funerals, one of a deputy U.S. Marshal and two of special deputies that were assigned to sh- the fugitive task forces that were local sheriffs, the sheriff deputies that were killed. And we also supplement some scholarship money as well for their children. And for those who don't know the difference between uh, Deputy U.S. Marshal and Special Deputy, what is that? Well, Deputy Marshal, you know, we have roughly 4,000 Deputy Marshals around the country and are men in some different parts of the world. And then 
on fugitive task forces. Um, we deputize state and local police that work with us on fugitives. We also deputize people to work on the DEA agent or DEA task forces and the Joint Terrorism Task Force. Those people are deputized by us. So if those guys get killed or those guys or gals get killed in the line of duty, we'll also help um, pay for their funeral expenses. Jim, thanks so very much. Good luck with the sales of the book. And I think we're going to have you back again in the future to talk about the U.S. Marshal Service. And that's an agency that is really not well understood. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Jay. It was a pleasure. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and Podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.